Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Yarrow Willard is an herbalist and philosopher who lives in British Columbia, Canada. Yarrow was born into a family of foragers who have changed thousands of people's lives over the years. I just happen to be one of those people. I was ecstatic to sit down with Yarrow to pick his brain about mushrooms, wild foraging, pollens, and more. Even if you've never foraged a day in your life, I promise you will walk away from this episode looking at the outdoors a little differently. Also, if you haven't checked out my new site, Anchored Outdoors, what are you waiting for? Over the last six years, many of you have been asking me for videos of my guests in action, and that is exactly what we're doing over there. From masterclasses to free articles, we've taken Anchored to the next level and have no plans of slowing down. Head on over to anchoredoutdoors.com and have a look at our membership options. You can unlock the entire site and access all of our classes for a ridiculously low price. For the price of one class, you get access to all of them. And believe me, there are some major surprise classes and guests coming in that you will not want to miss. Hop on before prices go up and I'll see you over there in our private community section. Yarrow, thank you for meeting with me today and uh, bearing through this crazy raspy voice. It sounds like I've been screaming at my child all night, but really we're just getting over <laughs> a cold. <laughs> so where are you sitting right now? Well, I'm at Harmonic Arts, our heart quarters for my business. Um, we're superfoods, medicinal mushrooms, elixirs, that kind of stuff. 
And I'm just in our think tank room where all the really awesome stuff happens here on Comox Valley on Vancouver Island. Yeah. Well, a lot of my audience right now will be wondering who you are because we Mm. do, obviously we've got mostly fly fishers on the show, but you are somebody I've been admiring from afar for a very long time. I'm a huge fan of your YouTube channel and just all that you stand for, the way that you teach, the way you come across. I just think you do a fantastic job. So I would love to just introduce you to my audience. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's, it's been a journey. Um, you know, my father was a herbalist before me, so I'm a herbalist. And it's kind of like a second generation thing. Did herb walks as a kid, lived in a teepee for a little bit, did a lot of like outdoor adventuring as a child. My mom dragged us to the mountains every weekend. So it became a nature enthusiast through my whole life. And in the last, I guess, 15 years, I've been uh, creating herbal medicine movement in Canada from a grassroots level. Uh, working both with our product, but also with an educational stream via YouTube and via all the social media channels and just kind of trying to put out more awareness on plant medicine is people's medicine and how do we connect deeper to what I call uh, nature vitamin, vitamin N or uh, that vitamin G for green, right? Um, how do we get a little more of that in our lives? And I guess, how do we deepen that wisdom that is coming from the natural world and flows through us and we're part of, right? So that's that's my mission, deepening connection to the natural world. Yeah, well, it sounds like you were born to do this. Because I, I will admit, when I saw your name, Yarrow, is right? a, a plant a plant with amazing medicinal benefits and you can use it in, in, as tea, you can tincture. I mean, we can talk about that later, but that's your real name, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's not just my like hippie name, as we will call it. I've met a lot of like rainbows and uh, sweet grasses and people like that, that that is their name. But no, I'm actually named after a plant um, that is a powerful, really, the Latin name is Achillea milfolium. So it's really an Achilles plant, a warrior plant, but also a, a female warrior plant too. It's male, female. I've actually met a couple of the arrows even that are female. So it's it's transgender. <laughs> <I will say. laughs> yeah. Okay. Cause your dad has a very interesting history as well. So I think rather than skip around, I'll just do what I do with every interview and we'll just start with where you were born and raised. Well, I was born in Alberta in Calgary, actually originally, um, which is like far away from plants in my mind. It felt like a bit of a wasteland for that. My parents were a little bit ahead of their time and they were hippies to that degree. So my mom ran a health food store. My father, uh, ran a online or a herbal college. And so um, we started to do more of that. He's created a lot of supplements, a lot of products. One well-known in Canada is the Wild Rose Detox. And so um, I've been part of that Wild Rose family at Wild Rose College for my whole life, coming out of Alberta. But then as soon as I got a chance, when I finished my clinical herbalist diploma, I moved straight here to BC. And I've been here ever since and don't ever want to go anywhere else. <laughs> it's the best place on earth. Wild Rose Detox. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. My worlds are colliding right now because I've always, I've, I've obviously known about your dad's university and I'd like to just touch on a bit of that later because I think it's really interesting. But you're saying that the Wild Rose Detox that I took when I was younger in my mm-hmm. 20s is yep. from Wild Rose College. That's from your family? Yeah, that's my, yeah. So the Wild Rose Detox is probably the most famous product um, that he's created. And yeah, it's the number one cleanse in Canada and is, Definitely very popular now in the States as well. Okay. So your parents, and I mean, I'm not interviewing your parents, so I won't dive too far (laughs) down that rabbit hole, but what's their story? That's so interesting. 
Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say my, my father, like back then there was no herbal college, no online education platforms, no like, you know, places you could find this information. So he started in university in ethnobotany and then started studying in teepee camp with native cultures and actually wrote a book called Edible Medicinal Plants of the Rocky Mountains and Neighboring Territories a long time ago based on traditional native awareness and usage of a lot of these plants. And so spent time studying that. But then as the kind of grassroots movement of herbalism grew, um, Wild Roses has been around since 1975. So um, has been continually reinventing this. And now it's an online college. Uh, he did a lot of the classes through there. I do some of the teaching there. And um, that's kind of where where we've been working at for the last 35 years out my entire life, I guess. I mean, that's an accredited college. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in Canada, it has the, like, it's probably the number one herbal college for plant medicine. And, and back definitely in the eighties and nineties, it was the most advanced college around. Nowadays though, we're getting lots of other opportunities for people to learn about herbal medicine. And so there's some great places beyond there to start deepening that connection. Did you go to public school? I Actually went to Waldorf school. I don't know if you've heard of the Waldorf, but it's a Rudolf Steiner based um, philosophy around schooling. It's similar to, well, you've probably heard of biodynamic farming. Um, that comes out of Steiner philosophy. It was a system designed for building the imaginal realm in children and maintaining that piece around uh, the education. So really cool school. I, I was very fortunate to go to that. Nowadays, um, there's a lot more options for a more interesting education. But, you know, in high school, I started going to a public school and it was challenging because, you know, I got dinged for writing in pencil crayon and stuff like that. Like, no ballpoint pen only, you know, things like that. We were graded better at Waldorf if we drew pictures and wrote in color. <laughs> so it was, a, it was an interesting transition into the, the real world from this uh, really unique kind of interesting way of educating. Was it kind of like the, the Montessori style? Similar, but I'll, I'll say the difference between Montessori and Waldorf is Montessori is a little more, I'll say it's a little more academic and like focused on um, not grades, but on like achievements. Whereas Waldorf, like you start with the color blue and you just draw in blue and you do everything in blue. You make blue mountains and blue hills and blue people and blue. And you learn what blue is all about and you spend weeks looking at blue. And then you go and look at red and you just start with these primary colors, no faces with facial features, just like essences of people. It was designed actually post-World War II in Germany. Rudolf Steiner was in that sort of time. And it was actually a way of helping bring uh, more creative flow back to this kind of more analytical society. So what were you like in high school? Were you big into foraging and the outdoor life then? I, I was, you know, you, I, I mean, I was in the outdoor club. I went to the outdoor club and loved that and did, did the ocean kayaking trip with my school. We funded for, which was really fun. And I was definitely into that. But I would, I would say, you know, there's also this like counterculture side of me that was like, okay, uh, I want to be thinking outside the box. And I always have thought outside the box. So, you know, I went to like rave techno parties and stuff like that <laughs> as a kid and very quickly learned from eating bad itchy band a couple of times and like cheap food that this is terrible for my body. I don't feel good. I'm not feeling happy. I had grown up in this really healthy life. And so it didn't take me long to recalibrate to like, oh, wait a minute, listen to your body and it'll tell you what's good. And, and, and that's the, to me, that's been something I've been very fortunate to have is continual feedback loops of my system telling me how to respond and what is working with 
my body. So becoming more empathic internally has really helped me a lot in finding the best course in life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what did you take in college? You didn't go to Wild Rose College though, right? No, I did. I did. I went to Wild Rose College. I mean, at first, um, when I was going to go to university, I, you know, I had some money, like not a lot set aside for university, but I had a child when I was 20. Actually, I have a daughter and her name is Reishi, which is one of the most potent mushrooms. She's 20 years old now. So I'm 40. So I had a child really young. And so rather than go to a traditional college and school, I took my money and I actually bought a house. Um, and it was only like six grand. But at that time, I could actually get a mortgage. And um, this was amazing because it actually set me up for being able to be successful. And then I was able to do Wild Rose College through weekends and evenings. And it's a four and a half year program at the time it was for clinical herbalists, but I did it over six and a half years and um, was able to do that while being, at that point I was a single parent. My partner at the time was a gypsy and um, she's great, but she had definitely flown the coop and I had this young and for a little bit, um, which was interesting. It was just an interesting early start, but I think that responsibility for someone like me who is by nature, I want to be irresponsible because I want to be in creative flow and I want to be in that sort of play state. It was really great to force me into having a level of like security around how I was going to show up for the next 30 years. <laughs> yeah, this is fascinating. Hey, as a single parent, that would mean that a lot of your activities would involve your your daughter with you. How did you yeah. stop? How did you let her know what she could and couldn't eat. And, and I, I'm going to preface that by saying Adelaide forages with me and she's mm -hmm. actually really gr great at it. And, sh and she, we haven't had a problem of her eating anything that she shouldn't yet, but it's always a question that I'm asked. How do you ensure that they don't just assume they can eat everything and that every red berry is good for them? Right. Well, there's a bit of trust that has to be in there. Um, and it's hard as a parent, especially with a young child. And if it's your first child, especially with your first child, because you want everything to be perfect, right? But like, I've got four kids and my youngest right now is only 18 months and we are so much more relaxed with him, right? So from 20 years old to 18 months, I got a pretty big span and I got a eight year or a 10 year old and a 12 year old. So, but um, what I learned from the kids is that just like how dear, like they know, like they know they'll smell something, they'll nibble it, they'll spit it out. Remember that when it, something goes in your mouth, it's not actually in your body. It's in the hole in your donut, as I would call it, which is the space in between. It's not actually in your body. So, so there's no dotted line that says this is inside of me. This is still outside of me going through my tubes, right? My, my toroidal donut, as we'll call it. Um, and at first, my nibbler has the capacity, and I call it a nibbler. It's my scientific term for the taste, uh, sensory, organoleptic perception, but Right away, if it's bitter or off, my body will – and I watch the kids and they totally do that. They don't swallow so many things. Like my son will try everything and especially we got lots of weird uh, Japanese vegetables in our garden right now and like all the guy lang, he's, he tries it and he's like, nope, don't like it. Peas, yup, like them. Strawberries, yup, like them. Don't like the little top bits and so he's peeling off the little top bits and chucking them away. Right away, he knows intuitively. So – a little bit of trust on the parents level is important too. And then trust with evidence. When you see your child spit something out, okay, or peel apart parts of it that aren't edible, uh, that's that's been a big lesson for me to go like, aha, like they can figure this out on their own in a lot of ways. Now, obviously, there's some things like they see all the red berries and then they see this like little ghost berry and they think it's edible, but obviously it's not. You, you do have to kind of safeguard them at first. Uh, but my 
my children were all really intuitive over the years. And my one son, Rowan, he's 12 now. He was so into wild foraging. The first time he realized he could eat plants outside, he just would like sneak out to like eat the sorrel out of the garden or out of the grass. And like he snuck out and, and you know, and he, he, when he started learning about money, he built himself a little, what he called like wild food cafe in our backyard and tried to sell me dandelion greens and flowers and violets. And, uh, but he got right into it and he knew the, them by shape and pattern. Children recognized by pattern so much faster than adults do. Like we're pretty good at adult level, but my kids without knowing the real names of anything, they've, they've pattern recognized all the plants very quickly um, just in the surrounding area. I've got two questions for you stemming off of that. One in the Pacific Northwest, are there any berries that taste delicious that are poisonous? Not really. And, and poisonous is a loaded word because um, there's like things that you eat too much of them and they'll make you sick, but they're not poisonous, you know? So it's a little bit of a, not like, like foxglove or something that like you eat a little bit and you're vomiting or having a heart uh, attack or something, you know? So there are some definite strong poisonous plants, but as far as berries, like some of the, the more toxic ones are like the ghost berry, but it's white. Um, these little white berries, uh, there's a few red berries for sure. The twin berry is a little black double berry. That one's pretty toxic but they don't taste good. And again, the thing I would remind people is that the difference between like poisonous, poisonous and slightly toxic is a big scale. Like where you could probably eat a handful of these twin berries and they're gross. And you're going to be like, what am I, your intuition is just going to be like, ding, 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 ding. This is wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> but you still do it because you're ignorant or you, whatever. Um, you're probably going to vomit first. And then um, realize, wow, okay, that wasn't good. But it's not going to have this huge long-term effect. There are some things that are like, will cause liver damage or the things like the, the foxglove, but those are really well known. Um, so my recommendation to any forger is there's usually like a dozen, maybe in Australia, it's different from Canada, but in different places, there's, a, there's at least a dozen poisonous, poisonous plants out there. And some that are foolers, like, the deadly water hemlock that looks like a wild carrot. So you got to, you know, know those, those specifics. And there's only a few of them. It's not a lot. It's easy to remember, actually, once you get to know them. In any plant guide, there'll be like a little section on poisonous plants. And it's usually pretty small for really poisonous plants. Um, oh, I, you know what? A, a red berry kind of, there's like a deadly nightshade. Um, oh, that, nightshade, that does, yeah. That does have a red-ish berry. It looks like a little goji tomato kind of thing that's pretty deadly. That's probably one. It doesn't taste that bad. It's not really sweet. Oh. There's a little bitter note in the end, but, and I've eaten it on purpose just to like taste it. And again, I'll, I'll reference this with, it's all about dosage, right? Like this, I wanted to know, I wanted to know what this tasted like. So I'm like, great. I know if I eat one or two or I nibble on them, roll them around my mouth, spit it out after, get a taste for it. Um, I'll understand the qualities to it without actually getting the toxic load. That's my second question is sometimes I'll take a berry and I'll, around here in Australia, I'm still learning and I'll, I'll pick a berry and I'll kind of touch my tongue to it or take a tiny little chunk out and just taste it. And in my head, I'm always like, oh, I'm going to die, you know, but can, can you really get any sort of damage to yourself by just tasting it? Like you said, it's, it's not like it's necessarily in you at that point. No. Yeah. My, my um, intuition has always told me if you're curious, you'll find the answer, right? So nibble it, taste it, smell it. And if it really, like you think it's actually really good, 
then you're going to take some pictures of it and you're going to go online and look it up and you're going to find out what other people are. You're going to actually educate yourself. So just keep being curious, right? And, and it doesn't take long. Some people go out. It's like when people start a project or a business or something, they think they got to do everything, all these different things. But if you take care of one little thing at a time, slowly, 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 you become a master of it all. You've learned it all, right? So, so I recommend people learn like 10 new herbs. Don't focus on the 500 herbs that are around you. Like that's overwhelming. Learn 10 new herbs and learn what they taste like, smell them, taste them, Google them, uh, find them in your guidebook, get to know them. And then next year, learn 10 new herbs. And then, you know, and just keep that like five years from now, you now are like very well fluid in 50 herbs. Like that's huge. Such a good, that is such a good point. I really want people to listen to what you just said there. Because when I first started, I was super excited and enthusiastic. And I had my Beverly Gray book and I was like, I'm going to memorize every single one of these plants, all of the Latin names, all of the qualities. And I would sit there every night reading, reading, reading. But it's like in and then yeah, out. <laughs> in, in a lot of ways it was, but it was also incredibly overwhelming because then I'd go out in the bush and I would, mm-hmm. I would suddenly see I was blind for so many years. I never knew all, all those years I was walking over all these amazing plants and suddenly the blinders were off and I could see the plantain and the yarrow and the nettle and the mint mm-hmm. and know what it could do for myself. And it was really overwhelming. And it wasn't until I finally decided, okay, listen, I'm never going to learn all this right away. I'm going to just get to know one at a time really intimately. And then once I'm, I'm so com- comfortable with it that it comes second nature. I'll move on to the next. And I'm just a much happier, more relaxed, more knowledgeable forager after that. I have this, like, I like to teach people to begin with at the very beginning level about what I call the people plants. And these are the plants, I I put it in air quotes, the people plants, because they're the plants that are close to us that show up in all of our disturbed soil. Whenever we come in with our bulldozers and with our machines and we break up the earth and inflame it. These plants come in and heal the earth, and there are many of our best medicines. And there are things like your plantain and your dandelion and burdock and these easy-to-recognize plants that are abundant around us, even yellow dock. So these plants are the ones I often suggest people start with learning because there's tons of information on them. They've been used for centuries, so there's all this old world and new world information on them, and they're abundant around us. Plus, they're sustainably forageable, right, because they're just – there's so much abundance of them. So those are the plants I often get people to start with. Typically, when we're young herbal sprouts, we want to look to the exotic plants. A lot of people are like, wow, the ginsengs and the maccas and the ashwagandhas, and they're all excited about these exotics, and they want to grow them in their garden, but their garden's totally the wrong environment for these things sometimes. Um, It's so much easier and more intuitive to just kind of start with these really basic plants and then get familiar with how plants might show up via spending time with those plants. And then you become much more intuitive. One of the problems with books and education and the information age we have is it is overloading and it takes people out of what I'll call their heart mind, which is this direct connection, direct communication that you get back and forth with other interspecies relationships. And that's what plant medicine is actually about, really, is creating an interspecies relationship. Uh, and it's not just the chemistry or anything like that. It's the relationship that that builds over the years with these plants. And then they become so much more medicinally potent. I know a number of herbalists who 
they only work with like 15 plants, but they know those plants so well that they have such a profound effect when they use them in, in specific ways for even a wide variety of different illnesses. Yeah. Would you say that most of your foraging is for medicine or for food? It's mixed. It depends on the year. Um, I, I do most of it for, for medicine, but then I've also gotten in the last few years, I've gotten really into fermenting um, meads and herbal wines and stuff. So it's become not food, but beverage a little bit. Like let's um, play with like making a huckleberry wine or something this year or cherries or, so there's a lot of that that goes in there too in the last few years. Like we just made a pine pollen uh, berserker beer, as we call it, which is essentially pine pollen's high in androgens, which produce testosterone, versus estrogen, which is in hops. So hops beers give you the beer belly, give you the kind of estrogen body, whereas the pine pollen is more androgen-based. So a little more toning your muscles, giving you more energy. And we call it berserker beer, but it was fun. Like we made fur tips and pine pollen beer. And both are in season at the same time. And really fun, intuitive ways to then take what old world culture would have done with herbs, which is ferment a lot of it and turn it into medicine that way. Uh, fermented herbal wines and beers were the classic medicine of the 1800s and 1700s and before that. But now um, it's just kind of resurging for me anyway. It's one of my passions these days is culturing my medicine a little bit. This is so interesting. So what is pine pollen? Is that just in pine cones so pine cone pine has like a male and female flower right we've got the cone which is the female and then the catkin which is the male oh, and the male so it, it's yeah. wind blown so whenever you, it's it you flick the little catkins and out comes this poof of yellow dust that's the pollen and you know intuitively again this is part of that intuitive side of learning from plants, just like every other creature, we're driven by sex, we're driven by reproduction. Our most valuable chemistry is in our reproductive organs or juices or whatever it might be. Our body shapes are based on this whole reproductive functionality. Well, same with plants, right? So the pollen is the best chemistry that any plant produces. It's like it's its ultimate powerful um, matrix of alchemy that it's created. So in pollens, you start to see essential fatty acids. You start to see uh, full-spectrum amino acids and proteins. You start to see um, lots of flavonoid groups and antioxidant groups and rutin and uh, coenzyme Q10 is in pine pollen and glutathione and crazy uh, SOD, a superoxide dismutase. It's this free radical scavenger. So huge array of chemistry, like this really this bath of the best chemistry on the planet, I think, is in pollens of all things from every plant. Um, so I've been a pollenophile, I guess. I've been playing with hazelnut and skunk <laughs> cabbage and uh, horsetail um, spore pollens. And so mushroom spores and uh, herbal pollens are things that have been what I consider the growing edge of intelligence from the natural world to uh, you know infuse your body with. This is one of the most fascinating things I've ever heard. How do you extract the, the spores? So, well, with, with, with reishi mushrooms or the like, um, artist conchs and some of those mushrooms, the, you can do a couple of different things, but like if you want, again, it's intuitive foraging. So what I've noticed is in the early mornings and in the evenings, the sun is coming through the forest at just the right angle to be hitting these mushrooms. So these mushrooms are built with like a little bit of a, a sensory perception on the top. And they're like, Ooh, 
you know, hot air rising, warmth on my cap, I'm going to produce four times the amount of pollen or spores in this case as I would during the heat of the day or during the nighttime. So you kind of can catch these certain waves where they're they're billowing out pollen or spores in that sense. So um, with the mushrooms also, a lot of the spores will go up and land back on top of the cap. So you can take a little brush, and if you have a good mushrooming knife, it has a brush on it. So I'll take a brush on the top of the cap, put a piece of paper underneath it, and just brush it all off into the paper, turn the paper into a funnel, and let the funnel go into a little jar. And boom, I've foraged pollen or, or spores. I keep saying pollen, but for mushrooms, it's spores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But could I just take – so could, when I'm bringing home all my mushrooms, could I take all the caps and put them on like a little cage or a mesh – and you know how you tap and wait overnight and yep. the spores fall, like when you do a spore print. Um, yep. Could I do it that way and then continue to either gill them or dry them or do whatever it is that I'm going to do with them? Totally, you can. If if you if you turn them upside down, though, versus having the pollen fall out of them, uh, if they're edible mushrooms you're gonna and you put them in the sunlight, the ergosterols in them are going to turn into bioactive vitamin D. So in a way, what I like to do with my fresh mushrooms is turn them upside down, give them a little sun exposure, and I'm producing vitamin D, which is another intuitive thing around mushrooms come in the gold gray cloud times when there's no sun. Well, guess what? They also produce what you need from the sun, which is vitamin D. So you can kind of make them a vitamin D supplement. Same with seaweeds, ironically. These two things are like nature's vitamin D storage, other than you know cod liver oil and deer livers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this is so interesting. Okay, now you mentioned fur tips. Yep. And I've only heard of using the spruce tips. Can you use all tips of conifers? So here's another thing around like, again, intuitive, like what's poisonous, what's edible, what's not. Um, typically plants don't produce what we call anti-herbivore chemistry in their initial growing phase, in their sprouting phase, in their first, what they're all they're trying to do is pump out chlorophyll and get some new growth. So most plants, their young greens are quite a bit more neutral or edible than their older greens, right? Just like lettuces go bitter, uh, the fresh young sprouts are always best and, and easiest. Same thing with the growing tips of any conifer, right? Any of those tips, the young tips are, are much better. Where we have here, we have the balsam fir or the grand fir, which is a nice flat fir. We also have Douglas fir. Then we have all the hemlocks, which kind of fit into that same family. The hemlocks don't have much nice flavor and you can taste that, but the balsam fir, very aromatic, very delicious, kind of a lemony scent, great for adding into drinks or adding into even salads and garnishing with them. And spruce tips, totally you can eat those too. I prefer the grand fir tips. They're they're probably by far my favorite of the tips. What about pine? Well, you know, again, like I I would want somebody to trust their organolyptic tasting you know my my kids were great that way with me like I, I gave him a piece of fireweed and i'm like it tastes like asparagus and he's like tastes like slime you know <laughs> like oh. me straight up it doesn't taste like asparagus it tastes like slime or like the needle of a pine when you chew on it it's going to be a little harder and if it tastes really hard and you can't really bite through it it's obviously more lignans and fiber than you're going to be able to digest but if you can bite through it nice and tenderly then yeah this is going to be digestible and that's part of the intuitive side that I would invite people to explore for themselves. So a lot of some pine is soft in its growing tips. They can totally eat that. Um, but other pines have a much harder, thicker needle. 
and it just starts off right away like hard and it's not but you can eat the catkins so those those little yeah. pine pollen catkins before they open up like actually before they become pollinating you can take them and munch them like little corns on the cob and they're actually pretty tasty when all the pollen's still in there i have friends who pickle them actually and create like they pickle the little pollen catkins and then we have them in the middle of the winter we eat these little corns on the cob pollens out of his little pickled fermented catkin jar. So you can do that with conifers too. One of our contributors did a uh, a recipe on cottonwood tempura, cottonwood catkin mm. tempura. Okay. Can you yeah. do that as well with the conifers? Uh, it's like it's it's really again it all comes down to how chewable is the piece of material you're working with. Like for example, the the why I say corn on the cob with these is because the central mid rib that holds the whole catkin together is not chewable. So we're kind of like, we're pickling the whole thing, but we're eating around that bit, right? Or you're pulling off all those little heads and just pickling them separately. Yeah. I mean, catkins are high in vitamin C, aren't I mean, uh, yeah. in no well, Flavonoids and, and vitamin C. Yeah, totally. Like and all of protein, them. right? I think I read that back in yep. the day, they used to dehydrate them and put them in stews and stuff for protein. So it's really like more simple, advanced, uh, I'll call it like amino acid groups. Like there's lots of protein, but really bioavailable protein in those um, catkins more so than other parts of plants. They don't produce that kind of protein. Seeds do too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Actually, all, all of this is kind of just piecing together now. I'd also read that the inner bark is high in protein, but I don't know how to take that inner bark without damaging the tree. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, let's talk about that for a second. I, I want to give one more example of a protein that people have classically used for foraging. Um, and it's, it's the, uh, cattail, right? I don't know if you know much about cattail, but it's a very much a survival plan, right? The roots are starchy and the little cat, the little hot dogs on a stick when they're pollinating, that's super high protein. So that's another great protein to, to work with. But Let's talk about um, the inner cambium layer of a, of a tree, uh, the, the inner bark, right? So obviously the outer bark is a protective coating to protect it from bugs and birds and stuff trying to get in there. And all the sap is running up the inner coat. So that's where all the medicine is on root barks and on barks. Um, but yeah, you're right. If you, um, a lot of people, if they go to harvest it, they intuitively go, Oh, this is wrong. Like I'm stripping this tree of its like life force. And you know, that that's where its blood is. So you're killing a tree if you ring it. So I tend to, to suggest to people, there's two ways. One is how does an elk do it? When they're walking through the forest, they, they grab a little bit with their teeth and they rip it up. And then they walk like 40 trees over and they grab another bit and they rip it up. Right. So you can imagine being like an elk where you're kind of going from like, far places you're not damaging too much in the forest that's one way if you're going to take the main central stem say it's like aspen or poplar and there's only like one main stem but if it's a tree that branches like i like to work with uh wild cherry bark i love wild cherry bark it's an amazing cough expectorant great for that sore throat and inflamed mucous membranes great one for people with a sore voice like yourself right now um so I'd use wild cherry bark, uh, but what I will do is I'll take a branch off the main stem and just take the branch, cut the whole branch off, and then skin the branch with my knife and use only the bark on the branch. So I haven't really hurt the whole tree except for trimmed its fingernails, essentially. Um, maybe a little further than fingernails, but but um, it's going to grow back. And so that's the best way to do it. The other thing is 
not to do that first thing in the spring when the sap is running. This is uh, much harder on the trees. And also not to do it right in the heat of the summer. I tend to like fall as my best time for barks. That way the plant is, the sap is coming down the tree into the roots. So you're still getting a good sap flow, which kind of can make the medicine a little stronger. But um, the plant's actually done its work and stored its energy. And it's not starving like it is in the spring, where it's just trying to pump all that sugar up to make leaves. Um, That's harder on the plant. What about in a situation, this has just occurred to me because I'm sitting here, I can see my garden out of my peripheral. I've been trying to grow a bunch of North American weeds here. And and it's legal. I mean, everyone who lives here right yeah. now in Australia would be going, right. introducing plants, what are you doing? But, you know, I've got my, well, I've probably got about 10 different weeds that I'm trying to to bring to life out there. And now that they're starting to sprout, I'm just worried that they're going to end up in my garden. Do you have any tips? I've seen your garden on your YouTube channel and it looks like it's huge and enormous, but what about tips for people who don't have quite as much space and they want to have their regular vegetables and their weeds, but have it all be controlled? Is there a way to do that? I mean, there's always pots, right? Like I don't put my mint in the ground often. Like we have a little (laughs) section of like a running thing of mint and oregano and all that stuff. It just like goes forever. So there's pots. That's one way to do that. Um, another one is to build up, like keep building towards that plant with like mulch on top and like protecting the spaces in between with more mulch. Just keep, you know, keep mulching an area so that nothing can grow through it. Um, we use straw sometimes in ours, but yeah. Right. So my stuff's all in pots, but I'm worried about it going to seed and then the seeds blowing and all of a sudden my whole yard's going to be covered in you know, net stinging nettle. Well, stinging nettle is not so bad because it mostly divides by root division. Uh, does by seed, but it loves root division and it's a little rhizome that kind of goes along the ground. So um, it, it's, you'll see it growing kind of thing. You'll see it, the patch kind of expanding, but it's things like, like, for example, we've had poppies or mullen or other things like that. Yeah, that just... mullen. Oh, well, I've got <laughs> mullen out there right now. So is mullen one of those things I've got to worry about? Oh yeah, you, you big time. <laughs> mullen will one mullen will turn into a thousand, you know, real quick. Um, same with like things like comfrey root. Um, if you break it up, all the little roots will start growing up new plants. So some of these are vigorous, vigorous plants. Um, I cringe every time I use the word weed. What is another word that I can call it? That. Cannabis? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, so many here in Canada, this like whole legalization thing. It's it's interesting. I'm just as a sidebar, like what a great gateway herb now to herbal medicine being like maybe wow, there's actually something to plants. It's not just weeds as we've we've called them, but but um so. I, that's why I call them people plants. Um, I, I, they're, they're instead of weeds, um, they're the I'll say the abundant plants or the the ones that that want to help us or that want to make our environments better. And we don't we have really short vision. Like humans have a short vision. We don't see very further beyond like next week, let alone like two or three generations from now. But most plants, the way they grow is a very long vision, long game. Like. Uh, all these weeds, all they're doing is nitrogen fixing and pulling up good nutrition into the subsoil to build up the, the microbiology. So the fungi and the bacteria are healthy again in these inflamed soils. Within like five to 10 years, 
you start to see they look crazy at first, but then they start to come down and you see more uh, permanent trees growing into those areas and more of these wild. Now that they've had spaces for ecosystems to get created. So most of these weed plants that we, we consider that way are gone within 50 years. You know, here on the West Coast, we have one called Scotch Broom, and it's very invasive, and people are always taking it down, and huge amount of money the government spends on, like, pulling it from highways. But in the places you see the Scotch Broom actually grow up, it's grown up and fallen down, and all the birds and snakes and insects are in there, and then little conifer trees are building new forests. So in the short game, they're weeds. In the long game, they're really the seedlings, the I guess the explorer plants. They're the the pilgrims that have come in to build back um, an ecosystem. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. So for somebody listening right now who thought, you know, who, who started listening thinking, I'll never forage, but now they're starting to think that maybe this is something they'll try out. Let's talk about five universal, relatively universal plants that somebody could easily start with. Well, we mentioned one already. The first one that always comes to my mind is plantain. And the reason I love plantain is because it, it another name for it is like, um, it's like, for lack of better words, called white man's footprint, because everywhere that colonizers went, it followed their wagons and their horses and their buggies all along. And it likes compact soils and it travels really well. So it's everywhere. So we see it around people, wherever people are, it's a people plant. It's always there. And the thing that's so great about it is it has this ability when you use the leaf to chew it up, you make a spit poultice. This is what it's called. And it's just chew the leaf up, put it onto a bug bite, a mosquito bite, a bee bite, a snake bite even. Put it onto a wound, an open wound, a closed wound, a sore, inflamed, itchy spot, and it starts to heal that. So if you have especially first aid things, when like somebody gets bit by a bee, if there's plantain around, get them to chew it up, pop it on there right away. It makes a huge difference. So that's one of the ones that I would I would really invite people to start with getting to know. You may not forage a ton of plantain except for in emergency situations um, or like redness, itching, rashing, mosquitoes, camping, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's a really good one to know. Yeah, and it's everywhere. It's, it's one of those mm-hmm. ones I remember when I first started looking for it, I'd seen wild plantain. So I went out looking for it. This is so silly, but I went out looking for wild plantains, like a banana looking thing. Right. And then when I realized, <laughs> that, when, I re- right. <laughs> when I realized what it was, I just, my socks were knocked off. It's everywhere. But it's a good one. It's really empowering too. You see it in like the cracks of city sidewalks and stuff even, you know? So it's an easy one and kids can get to know it. The other thing about plantain, just for another quick note on it, is the little seed heads. Yeah. Um, you may have heard of psyllium before. Have you heard of psyllium? Yep. Psyllium is a species of plantain that grows in India and they use it as a bulk laxative slash really fiber to to enhance the digestive system. Well, the little seeds on plantain are a great fiber for enhancing the digestive system too. So they're just a great anti-inflammatory internally. You can make tea out of both the leaves and the seed head for digestive inflammation or bronchial inflammation. So we get people who have a lot of like a bronchitis or uh, irritable bowel or Crohn's to make plantain as a tea or to incorporate it into their food, the plantain seeds. So there's a few other ways that that becomes internally anti-inflammatory as well as externally. That's amazing. It's it's one of my favorites and it's so easy to identify those stringy 
bits just make it yeah, so easy. It's easy. Once you get to know, um, Google plantain banana. No, don't do that. <laughs> Google plantain the herb. Well, plantain the herb. Okay. What's, what's, yeah. what's the second one? The next one that comes to mind for me, and it's just something because I was just connecting with it the other day, is red clover. Yeah. And I like this one. Yes. Because it's everywhere too, right? It's yes. like an easy one, those big red clover. You can use the white clover, but the red clover is far more potent. Um, and you can take the heads and make a tea with it. It's great. It tastes good. Or if you're like just intuitively and you want to kind of connect in and pull out those little filaments and taste the tips, the bottom tips of them, they have a little honey sweetness to them. So make a great tea. They're great for uh, female issues, for enhancing the progesterone in in women, um, and it's really balancing that. They're anti-inflammatory internally. Uh, They're just a great tasting tea. And the best thing about them is that they really cleanse the body. So they're a gentle cleansing herb that comes late spring, uh, right about now in June, where where at the time of this recording, July, uh, it's it's, uh, coming through and is Really great blood cleansing, liver cleansing, kidney cleansing, bladder cleansing. So nice, what's called an alternative herb um, that really can enhance the body. So that's one that's easy to recognize and it's everywhere. Now that's a blood thinner, I think I read. Is that right? Uh, very slightly, not really. It's not. It's more of a blood cleanser. Um, and the only reason it's a it's a diuretic essentially. Yeah, right. So it could be for people on um, one of the and one of the problems with diuretic herbs. There's nothing really bad about them but it's that if people are on artificial diuretics because they're on blood thinners already that can be problematic when you take too many natural diuretics because your body's naturally going to move that out and now you got this level of artificial blood pressure medications that are pushing that out and you become instead of being high blood pressure you get really low blood pressure for those kind of people so if you start to work with a lot of diuretics in herbs, and a lot of herbs have slight diuretic properties, there's usually not a problem with it unless you're on a high dose of a pharmaceutical and you're artificially being uh, diuretic. At that point, you want to work with your doctor and be like, look, I'm taking these herbs that are naturally diuretic. Can I get my blood pressure checked and my medication tweaked every month so I'm making sure that I'm like just in accordance and then it's simple. You become empowered because now you're in control of your medication because you're getting them to do testing and say, yeah, you should reduce my my um, medicine. And you're naturally doing that with a gentle tea that tastes pretty good. Yeah. You know, when it when I'm back at home in Canada, I usually just pick a bunch and I put it in some water and I let it sit overnight. And in the morning, I have my clover, my clover drink. Okay. What's number three? Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned it too. So I'm going to just, I'm just going to put it out there as nettles. Um, get to know them. If you live in a part of the world that has some kind of wetlands, um, nettles are amazing. They're the most nutritious, nutritious food in the spring. Um, I consider nettles to be my spring cleanse. So every year I rewild my diet with nettles as my kind of first wilding food and allow my body to reintegrate into that wild food diet a bit more by using nettles. And because they're so high in protein, they're really full of um, amino acid groups, but also like chlorophyll and lots of diverse chemistry. And the whole nettle is edible when it's young, gets a little older, and then the urtic acid kicks in and you've got more of this like hard chemistry that can create oxalic acid crystals in the kidneys. You got to be careful of older nettles, but young nettles are brilliant. And again, that goes back to that whole intuitive Young plants have less anti-herbivore chemistry. In nettles case, they get older, they're trying to produce seeds. They don't want you to eat them because they want to go to seeds. So they're like, 
hey, up the anti-herbivore chemistry, time to go to seed, but then you take the nettle seed, and oh my gosh, now this is a superfood beyond just nettles being a superfood. The seeds have all this really beautiful um, omega oils to them, like essential fatty acid, but they're also considered an adrenal tonic and a kidney restorative. So they to restore, it's a trophal restorative, restoring atrophy to the kidneys. And they taste kind of like sesame seeds almost. They're not quite as strong in flavor, but they have a little pop, a little texture like a sesame seed. So we often pick nettle seeds, add them to sea salt, grind it up like you would gamaggio in a, in a Japanese restaurant and put it onto our food. And nettle seeds become a real tonic winter nutrition for us as much as nettles are a really spring nutrition for us. So that would be my third and probably one of my favorite foods in the forest. Yeah, it's delicious too. So what's the fourth? I mean, it's, there's so many. Um, see, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with those, um, that, that cottonwood you talked about, um, for now as a herb to know, um, balm of Gilead is the actual thing you could Google to check out. And it's the cottonwood buds. Um, they're easy to know if you've ever got that sticky stuff on your car in the spring, that's cottonwood buds. If you've ever seen that white stuff floating through the air in the spring, that's the cottonwood fluff. But the nice thing I think about cottonwood buds is that you can pick them in the winter and in the early spring when nothing else is available to forage, really. And the little buds, little the sticky resin in those buds, the renamed balm of Gilead is really like this amazing healing balm. You can turn them into an oil. Or you can tincture them, but typically you macerate them in olive oil, but you want to heat it. So put olive oil on the stove or in what's called a double boiler where you've got a pot of water and then a mason jar with your oil in it inside and you're boiling the water and the mason jar is getting heated. That's a double boiler. And you put the cottonwood buds in there and you extract the oil out and then you filter it and you've got this cottonwood oil. That could be turned into a salve with beeswax really simply. You can make it with 17% beeswax, we'll make it hard, and you can rub it on the skin. Or you used to have it as an oil and you rub it on the skin that way. This is one of the best herbs um, for carpal tunnel and inflammation of the joints. So those cold winter days when you get kind of cracky joints or people who use the computer too much and start to get sore wrists or um, also gets anti-inflammatory for the lungs. So bronchial stuff, you can spread it on the chest uh, it's it's anti like it's good for eczema and stuff on the skin, and it's a deep penetrating painkiller too. So it's got uh, salicylic acids that are in willow bark that is aspirin originally, really the original aspirin. So it's this great painkiller that works as a, another one of these um, I'll, I'll say rescue healing salves for you know arthritis, joint pain. Uh, any kind of inflammation of the skin or internally burns. Yeah. Burns. Yeah. It's great for that. So that's a good one. One of my contributors, Amanda Godin, she owns Aurora Botanicals and she's making us a, a, a series of cottonwood bombs and fireweed bombs. Cause they're just, they're like miracles. It's a miracle. I mean, it really is one of the, so I, I love that one because it is really diverse and it's, it's another one of these herbal remedies that has a really deep, rich history and um, is also super abundant. Cottonwood is like an easy tree to find, especially here in Canada, but um, all over the place. Like it's not a hard one to find. Um, and it grows in desolate and temperate rainforest systems, right? It grows in a wide variety of places. Yeah. Now you've said something that's just got me sitting on the edge of my chair. So 
oils. Mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with essential oils. I've got a still and I'm always, I'm constantly being a scientific madman back there. Nice. <laughs> Are you saying that I can extract, I can extract essential oils from the catkins? So- so um the little it's yeah the little buds the sticky little um like first oh, the buds. they're going to yep, turn yep. yeah they're going to turn into branches right so they're just that uh, they put it out the year before for a lot of trees and cottonwoods one of those you the oils are thick right so they're resin they're kind of like a thick gooey oil so the way um you want to extract that you can you're not going to get a volatile oil like you would in a lot of your essential oils right like a mint oil or something like that which is much more volatile you're going to get this thick, sticky resin, um, which is why we would extract it in olive oil. So we'd heat the the buds to get the oil to or the resins to move into and infuse the oil. Just like a tincture is essentially alcohol and the herb put together and the alcohol breaks down some of the chemistry and brings over the bioavailable pieces and leaves the fiber behind. That's kind of what the oil is doing when it's heated um, in the double boiler. And the reason olive oil is only because it can handle the heat, but any oil that can handle the heat, um, it doesn't need to be super hot, but it just needs to warm up. The only other way to extract these is in 95% alcohol to really pull out that. Yeah. That's sorry to interrupt you. I'm so excited right now because this is my life. I mean, infusions are my entire life. And I missed that when you initially had said that because I know how to make infusions and I've done some videos about how to do a basic infusion, but Mm -hmm. The, al- the alcohol. So how how would that work? To to make an alcohol extract. Well, yeah. So it, it does it does it eventually does the alcohol dissolve, leaving me with just the oil? Uh, or is it more of a tincture? Still, it will. Yeah. If you're if you're going to put it through some or I've seen there's some interesting new things that are coming out because of the cannabis industry essentially, which is really cool. Extraction methods like these vacuum extractors that you can make an alcohol extract and then pull out these thicker resins so we're going to play with that a little bit in the next year because my my dad got one of these home vacuum extractors for um getting thick resinous oils out uh, that came from that industry to play with for some of these thicker oils that might not be as easily done into a volatile oil or into a liquid form but yeah essentially you still have the alcohol in it up to 95 percent so you have to be Careful. What we do sometimes with 95% alcohol um, balm of Gilead tincture, I call it the blam. That's just my nickname for it is the blam. And we'll do it in like mocktail culture. We make a lot of, again, taking herbal extracts and creating like soda stream drinks where we're adding tinctures and adding in uh, syrups and cordials and bitters we've made into the soda water. And we'll make a little mocktail kind of drink. And then you put one or two drops of the balm of Gilead oil on top or the tincture. And because of the 95% alcohol, it holds that resin into solution. But as soon as it goes into a more dilute water, it like wicks off and turns into this kind of waxy coat that makes this weird cloudy shape. So it's kind of really fun to like to make and do that way. So you add a couple of drops of blam. It's like you made this little alchemy sort of like, um, I don't know, the, the guy in this, the the bad wizard in the Smurfs, when he put something in his pot and then poof, what would come this big cloud of weirdness? Sort of like that. It feels like with the Balm of Gilead. So I play with it that way. It has a beautiful taste, very floral, really nice flavors to it. Um, but it's hard to take 95% alcohol on its own like that. It really is. Okay, the fifth, the fifth one. What's the fifth and last one? Something that might be in um, 
parks as much as forests to me is more useful um, for people to know because they're going to see it more consistently. So I, I guess... I mean, I want to I want to say dandelion because I really feel like it's just so abundant. It's just so everywhere, and you're just gonna you're not gonna see it in the forest though, right? Because this is a nitrogen fixer that fixes inflamed grasslands. Um, but I love how that one shows up. It's really tenacious, and it just gets into everything everywhere. And I think that's a quality that we need a bit more right now to like scrub into stagnation on planet earth. So dandelion from a esoteric level, from a philosophical metaphysical level to me is like the herb of humanity right now. It's like dig deep into what's congested and not working and build these deep roots that, that channel right through that stuff. I think that's what we need on that level. But because of that, it also um, has a great function in the body, right? It's, it's an aerator. So it aerates our stagnation and it's a detoxifier. So especially for the liver and the blood and the kidneys, but especially for the liver, if you can imagine your liver was like a grassy lawn, dandelion comes in and aerates it, right? It punches these holes through your stagnation and gives you better flow in your liver. So it's not really a um, uh, liver repairer. It's more of a liver cleanser, whereas like milk thistle might be your liver repair. Dandelion's the cleanse and the squeezing the liver to actually function better. And the reason this is so important is because the liver, for lack of better words, is our shipper receiver of the body. It deals with all the outgoing garbage and all the incoming new product and everything. So it's really overworked. It's overwhelmed most of the time. And especially in a world where we're eating the wrong foods, and we have total hormonal imbalance overload with all the phytoestrogens and the plastics and all of the like bad, all the bad um, chemistry and preservatives and colorings and additives. Our liver is working hard. And even in city water, you're still like the amount of birth control that most people drink in their water just from the city is, is beyond what is actually safe you know so so you're dealing with a lot of chemistry for your body to to deal with so i think dandelion is a plant for the people of the times and it's shown up everywhere on earth to really be the best plant we can start to get to know better and there's so much to learn about dandelion and from dandelion um, even the seeds are antibacterial so i've used them as a slight antibiotic with the little seeds we've crushed them up and made them into tinctures that way um the roots, you can roast to make a coffee, right? That's just a beautiful beverage to kick coffee with or to add even to coffee to give it a bit more detoxifying, uh, blood sugar stabilizing quality. There's inulin in them. So that's another blood sugar stabilizer. Uh, there's a lot to that plant that is awesome. Even the latex has been shown to help remove warts, um, but you got to do a lot of it. I, I've seen people try and it's like 30 dandelions, every single day and they're starting to see some progress with their warts. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the dandelion was initially what they used as lettuce. Yeah. And, and again, again, here's something intuitive for your wild foraging needs. Not every dandelion is treated equally or is created equally. The ones out in the hot, sunny, starched grass are going to be smaller and far more bitter. So they're much more liver detoxifying and stimulating. Whereas in the shaded grass underneath the 
the trees, the long, big dandelions are going to be much gentler in taste, the leaves, right? So, so you go pick those ones for your salad, or you'd never take the ones out of the middle of the field. They're much too bitter and small, right? And even in the season, in the beginning of the spring, dandelion is far more cleansing. You get through the end of summer and the roots have built up all that starch and it's far more blood sugar stabilizing. So even the same plant is continually shifting its chemistry. So as people, we tend to put these plants in boxes like dandelion, good for the liver. End of story. Dandelion is a dynamic individual with a personality who changes every day, right? So like try to think of your plants as having a much more complex, diverse way of showing up, just like your friends. They have good days, bad days. They have interpersonal issues. You know, they have relationship issues with the microbiome in their environment. So, um, so they're, yeah, they're dynamic. They're much more dynamic than we give them credit for. My last question for you is just about usnea lichen. It's something that I find a lot of people aren't that well versed with are the lichens. Yeah. What What is the deal with lichen? Is there a book that you recommend or is there a way for us to really be able to dive into it? So firstly, because of the hard, strong chemistry of lichens on the outer layer, they're not super easy to extract. So old world medicine didn't use as many lichens. Now, I believe that they are the growing edge of knowledge again, just like the pollens are. There's something really potent to lichens. So there's a lot of a bright, I think there's a bright future for lichens in the world of health. Um, and Usnia is the shining example right now. Um, but there's a book, uh, Robert Rogers, he's a Canadian herbalist, academic and Canadian herbalist. He writes a great book called Fungal Pharmacy, which is on mushrooms. Highly recommend it. It's like the best medicinal mushroom book right now that I know of for mushrooms in Canada, um, for like medicinal mushrooms. But he also writes another one on lichens and lungworts and um, other stuff like that. So he's he's probably got the best like one-stop shop uh, book to check out. Um, and I think he's done a couple of blogs on it. But there's information out there. And, and just to kind of why lichens are so cool, because they really are, is that here's like symbiosis at its most magical moment. Like Lichens are not a plant. They're not a mushroom. They're not a bacteria. They are not a seaweed, but they're all of it almost. They're an algae. And in the inside, they have this chloroplast algae center that's got an outer fungi layer to protect it. So like a fungi, the protective coat on the lichen is fungi-based. And inside the cells, working with the, the, the um, chlorophyllite kind of algae is a bacteria. So they're three in one. They're actually this this little microcosm organism symbiosis of three things, bacteria, fungi, and um, algae. So they're like a seaweed and a mushroom and a plant in a way, but also a bacteria. So this really cool little ecosystem of, of working, which is part of what makes them, I think, really more sophisticated and why we haven't been extracting them well. So you really need to do what's called a dual extraction with a lichen. You need to cook down the fungi layer in order to break open the cell walls so all the chitin and lignans become more um, soluble and bioavailable so you get that inner layer and then there's also um, this alcohol soluble compounds that can be extracted at a higher alcohol so we do uh, alcohol extraction a hot water extraction put the two together to make a really strong <laughs> boom. <laughs> boom, oozmia magic, right? 
You yeah. can put ouzia in tea, but you want to decoct it. You want to lightly simmer it for a period of time. And why ouzia? Well, this is one of the most interesting antibiotics, almost antibacterial herbs we know of. Uh, it doesn't work like most of your like golden seals and other antibacterials, which are, I give them the analogy of Rambo with the big gun. They come into the room and they're like, I'm antibiotic, kind of like a <laughs> antibiotic might do. And they start hammering out bacteria and just taking them down. Whereas Usnia is like the Shaolin ninja. It's like the behind the scenes guy where it's like, it actually comes in and it says, bacteria, you're no longer, you're cut off from the bank account. Essentially, you don't have any more energy. It shuts down ATP production in bacteria, which is really cool because then what's the, the strength of bacteria is their ability to reproduce hyper fast and adapt super quickly with this rather than fighting it. It just says, nope, no more cash. You can't make babies essentially. And just shuts down the process and signals the cell look look at this bacteria build some antibodies like start getting your actin gear um and it kind of educates the body in how to like be a little more um i'll say strategic in dealing with bacterial infections can i chew it if i have a sore throat like right now or is that going to give me too much acid no you you can chew it the problem is is that your um saliva doesn't do a great job of breaking down the chitin layer uh, and the lignans in some ways, right? Like it's not the best. It will help, but you're better to lightly simmer it and drink the broth, essentially. Could you use it as a, a spit poultice in an injury or anything like oh, that? Oh, yeah. So so externally, um, like powdered is what I like. Um, so yeah, and it powders easily. Dry it, um, blend it up in your Vitamix or blender or whatever you have put it through a screen, make nice powder, keep it in a little jar, and then you just pack a wound with it. Super amazing for that. Yeah, that way. Or you could um, add a little liquid to that and make a little gel kind of thing. Got it. Got it. And just for people listening, um, it's uh, when, you're, when, when you're walking through the bush and you see old man's beard, I think is the other name for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's using yeah. Yeah. And if you go and you take it, because there's like, what, over 500 species of it or something. There's a lot, and that's one of the things is actually identification. And yet, something that I'm at least intuitively downloading a little bit right now is that there's a lot more to this lichen conversation we just have not scientifically validated yet. And I think that we're going to see a lot more of these lichens with, like, wow, this actually has a medicinal benefit. Like, like um, Uzi also has tons of vitamin C, but so do other lichens. Like, a lot of them have flavonoid groups and vitamin C to them, too. And a lot of them have cool chemistry we just haven't unlocked it and used it that much um but we'll see you know we'll see like lungwort's one that's also been started to really be looked at for that same thing for bronchial stuff for better breathing for antibacterial function in the lungs um and usnium for those of you like um you're saying the easy way to tell is it's got an elastic kind of cord in the center and you separate it you pull it apart slowly and it'll break into these sections with a little cord in the middle um, and Google it and you'll, you'll get to know it. It's easy to tell once you know. One more thing I think it's cool about it. And this is something that comes out of Stephen Hare Buner's work that I, he kind of brought in that I thought was really cool is Usnia is here to help planet Earth breathe better. It shows up only in these intact ecosystems and is, um, very much to help us breathe better, to help the trees breathe better, to help the planet breathe better. And so I just think lichens, they hold a really cool place in evolution, but also in the future of health for humanity. So true. I, I had read, yeah, that it can't and what doesn't exist in a highly polluted area. Right. 
Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I've been, I've been looking at that because I drove by a tree the other day, right in the middle of a roundabout by the, by a busy road. And I thought, Oh, look at all that Ustan that I realized it, it, it wasn't and it couldn't no. be. But yeah, it's got, when you, when you pull it apart, it's like a hollow, white, stretchy, elastic mm-hmm. cord. My daughter, my daughter loves it. She thinks it's the best stuff ever. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a neat one. Um, and I think there's a, there's a, there's so many other great herbs too. You know, we've talked about six now essentially with that one. Um, but you know, that's again, just the tip of the iceberg, you know, there's just so many great plants, um, to start connecting with getting curious about. I have this term I like to use called getting fun comfortable, which is like, I'm uncomfortable with, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to explore it because it's exciting and interesting. So I, I encourage people to get a little bolder with um, getting out and getting curious about some of these plants that are in their area. Because every ecosystem has healing herbs and that's the easiest way to start. There's lots of food herbs too, right? Of course we could start to, to look at, but some of the healing herbs in, in every part of the world, they're there. I don't know how I lived in this world and fished the way that I did without seeing the plants the way I do now. I feel like I always felt like I saw the world for, you know, the, the natural world the way that I should, but it wasn't until I started foraging that I really saw it for, for what mm. it is. And, 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 you know, and still am obviously, and I've got right. you to thank for that. So uh, for people who want to find your YouTube channel, because honestly it is mind bending. It is spectacular. Where can people find you on YouTube? So I go by the hashtag of Herbal Jedi. Um, our YouTube channel is the Herbal Jedi channel. Um, you can find me on any of the social platforms under the same thing. Um, but yeah, Herbal Jedi, we have, a, I think we have like maybe 140 videos on there right now. Uh, pretty good. We put some energy in. I got a great videographer. So we actually do some nice editing and we use a microphone so it sounds good and lots of great content around plant medicine. Um, right now, what I'm trying to develop more is I'm, I'm playing with this concept of transcend domestication which actually is something that came out of really out of daniel vitalis's work around rewilding originally but this idea of transcending the domesticated landscape and moving through that so i'm trying to play with a lot more of that these people plants and just we'll be continually adding more to that um to that channel yeah well i i will be linking all of this up and hope to work with you again more in future is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me that I've missed? No, I, I mean, other than I'm, I'm just, I'm happy that you're doing this work and sharing, uh, like broadening the perspective of, cause I feel like if you're listening to this and you're into hunting or fishing or foraging, I feel like intuitively there's a piece of all of us that it's, it's about deepening our connection and this connection to the, like the idea of the empathic hunter, many hunter types get labeled as this like, oh, I got a big gun and want to go kill things. But really, these are some of the most intuitive, connected people who know the signs of nature. So I would just encourage you to add wild foraging, to add plant communication to your roster of things you do when you're out there. And plant communication doesn't have to be this whole like, I'm meditating with the plant and downloading. That's that's like maybe the hippie stereotype of it. But it's about observing tasting, smelling, noticing the patterns, connecting in with um, what's showing up in those environments, watching the herbs that are turned over and eaten and and um, what are other plants and animals doing around that community. So build relationships with plants. That would be my invitation. Build them directly. 
Don't worry too much about whether you know it or not. If you're really curious, you will get to know it. No problem. But if you start by being curious about the types of plants and how they show up, you're going to get a great opportunity to build new friends, to build new allies, to build new medicine, to build up your resilience in general. And um, plants are better than people in some ways that you can talk to them and they don't criticize you. <laughs> they don't. They don't give you crap. They're easy to talk to. So um, when you're out there fishing, foraging, hunting, take a moment to just connect deeper with those those little green things underneath your feet. I can't thank you enough for sharing all that. Thank you. No problem. All right. May the forest be with you, and we'll catch you next time. That concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. If you like the show and you'd like to tell me about it, I read all of your reviews. Please feel free to head on over to iTunes, leave your review, and let me know what you think of the episode. Thanks for listening. Oh, 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 oh,